Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, "The Man Without a Body" by Edward Page Mitchell. This was first published in The Sun, Sunday, March 25th, 1877. This is the New York Sun, and I spent a lot of time uh, with a student of mine cleaning up, uh, well, not cleaning up, I guess retyping this, because the original was so hard to read, and the place I found it originally was in a, a collection that had typos that I thought, this makes no sense. And that's all the versions on the internet, basically, are are from a terrible transcription. I, I say terrible. It had like three or four places where I'm like, this, is, this can't be right. So we've gone in and cleaned it up. We've cleaned it up a couple of times. And now we have a pristine, readable version. There's also the original legible, illegible version. So you can compare and see if I've made a mistake. Um, published in a newspaper. This story is astounding to me because it's, uh, I would say, a science fiction story. Um, I would even say a hard science fiction story. Also, it's a fantasy. And it's about uh, Star Trek-style technology uh, from 1877. Edward Page Mitchell is a science fiction writer. He has a time travel story that came out way before H.G. Wells's, And it's a technical time travel, like like H.G. Wells's rather than than um, Mark Twain's sort of, you know, got conked on the head time st- style of time travel. Um, so this guy, I think, is going to be somebody I'm going to spend more time looking after. Had you heard of him before? Yes. Oh, OK. Well, <laughs> there's still things for me to learn, I guess. Uh, he's he's uh, an important uh, writer that. Uh, those people who like to talk about proto-science fiction with the mm. idea that real science fiction didn't start until either H.G. Wells or um, Jules Verne a little earlier or Hugo Gernsback a little later, they would call him proto-science fiction. But really? since I like to think of um, The Tempest as science fiction, mm. uh, I'll burn my books. Um, I just right. think of Edward Page Mitchell as science fiction. Word. Right. Yeah, no, that's cool. All right, um, you've kindly agreed to read this for us. Would you do so? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about what's going on in it. I will give it a shot. The reason I put it that way is that, as uh, as you know, and <laughs> there are a lot of very odd um, oh, yeah. Latin terms here, and I don't read Latin as fluently as I read English. But here we go. The Man Without a Body by Edward Page Mitchell. On a shelf in the old Arsenal Museum in the Central Park, in the midst of stuffed hummingbirds, ermines, silver foxes, and bright-colored parakeets, there is a ghastly row of human heads. I pass it by the mummified Peruvian. I pass by the mummified Peruvian, the Maori chief, and the flathead Indian to speak of a Caucasian head, which has had a fascinating interest to me ever since it was added to the Grimm collection a little more than a year ago. I was struck with the head when I first saw it. (laughs) The pensive intelligence of the features won me. The face is remarkable, 
although the nose is gone and the nasal fossae are somewhat the worse for wear, the eyes are likewise wanting, but the empty orbs have an expression of their own. A parchmenty skin is so shriveled that the teeth show to their roots in the jaws. The mouth has been much affected by the ravages of decay, but what mouth there is displays character. It seems to say, barring certain deficiencies in my anatomy, you behold a man of parts. The features of the head are of the Teutonic cast, and the skull is uh, the skull of a philosopher. What particularly attracted my attention, however, was the vague resemblance which this dilapidated countenance bore to some face which had at some time been familiar to me, which lingered in my memory, but which I could not place. After all, I was not greatly surprised when I had known the head for nearly a year to see it acknowledge our acquaintance and express its appreciation of friendly interest on my part by deliberately winking at me as I stood before its glass case. This was a trustee's day, and I was the only visitor in the hall. The faithful attendant had got to enjoy a can of beer with his friend, the superintendent of the monkeys. The head winked a second time, and even more cordially than before. I gazed upon its efforts with the critical delight of an anatomist. I saw the masseter muscle flex beneath the leathery skin. I saw the play of the bucinators and the beautiful lateral movement of the internal pterygoid. I knew the head was trying to speak to me. I tried. I noted the convulsive twitchings of the rosorius and the zygomatic major and knew that it was endeavoring to smile. Here, I thought, is either a case of vitality long after decapitation or an instance of reflex action where there is no diastaltic or excitatory motory system. In either case, the phenomenon is unprecedented and should be carefully observed. Besides, the head is evidently well disposed toward me. I found a key on my bunch which opened the glass door. Thanks, said the head. A breath of fresh air is quite a treat. How do you feel? I asked politely. How does it seem without a body? The head shook itself sadly and sighed. I would give, it said, speaking through its ruined nose and for obvious reasons using chest tones sparingly, I would give both ears for a single leg. My ambition is principally ambulatory, and yet I cannot walk. I cannot even hop or waddle. I would fain travel, roam, promenade, circulate in the busy paths of men, but I am chained to this accursed shelf. I am no better off than these barbarian heads. I, a man of science, I am compelled to sit here on my neck and see sandpipers and storks all around me with legs and to spare. Look at that infernal little Odeonensis longpipus over there. Look at the miserable gray-headed Porfirio. They have no brains, no ambition, no yearnings, yet they have legs, legs, legs in perfusion. He cast an envious glance across the alcove at the tantalizing limbs of the birds in question and added gloomily, there isn't even enough of me to make a hero for one of Wilkie Collins's novels. I did not exactly know how to console him in so delicate a matter, but ventured to hint that perhaps his condition had its compensations in immunity from corns and the gout. And as to arms, he went on, 
there's another misfortune for you. I am unable to brush away the flies that get in here. Lord knows how. In the summertime, I cannot reach over and cuff that confounded Chinook mummy that sits there grinning at me like a jack-in-the-box. I cannot reach my head or even blow my nose. His nose, decently, when I get cold in this thundering draft as to eating and drinking i don't care my soul is wrapped up in science science is my bride my divinity i worship her footsteps in the past and hail the prophecy of her future progress i i heard these sentiments before in a flash i had accounted for the familiar look which had haunted me ever since i first saw the head pardon me i said you are the celebrated professor that is or was my name, he replied with dignity. And you formerly lived in Boston, where you carried on scientific experiments of startling originality. It was you who first discovered how to photograph smell, how to bottle music, how to freeze the aurora borealis. It was you who first applied spectrum analysis to mind. These were some of my minor achievements, said the head, sadly nodding itself. Small when compared with my final invention, the grand discovery, which was at the same time my greatest triumph and my ruin. I lost my body in an experiment. How was that? I asked. I had not heard. No, said the head, living alone and friendless, my disappearance was hardly noticed. I will tell you there was a sound upon the stairway. Hush! cried the head. Here comes somebody. We must not be discovered. You must dissemble. I hastily closed the door of the glass case, locked in just in time to evade the vigilance of the returning keeper, and dissembled by pretending to examine with great interest Annis Acuta, or Pintail Duck. On the next trustee's day, I revisited the museum and gave the keeper of the head a dollar on the pretense of purchasing information in regard to the curiosities in his charge. He made the circuit of the hall with me, talking volubly all the while. That there, he said, as we stood before the head, is a relict of morality presented to the museum 15 months ago, the head of a notorious murderer, guillotined in Paris in the last century, sir. I fancied that I saw a slight twitching about the corners of Professor Dumkoff's mouth and an almost imperceptible depression of what was once his left eyelid, but he kept his face remarkably well under the circumstances. I dismissed my guide with many thanks for his intelligent services, and as I had anticipated, he departed forthwith to invest his easily earned dollar in beer, leaving me to pursue, leaving me to pursue my conversations with the head. Think of putting a wooded-headed idiot like that, said the professor, after I had opened his glass prison, in charge of a portion, however small, of a man of science, of the inventor of the telepomp, Paris, murderer, last century indeed, and the head shook with laughter until I feared that it would tumble off the shelf. You spoke of your invention, the telepomp, I suggested. Ah, uh, yes, said the head, simultaneously recovering its gravity and its center of gravity. I promise to tell you how I happen to be a man without a body. You see that some three or four years ago, I discovered the principle of the transmission of sound by electricity. 
my telephone, as I called it, would have been an invention of great practical utility if I had been spared to introduce it to the public. But alas, excuse the interruption, I said, but I must inform you that somebody else has recently accomplished the same thing. The telephone is a realized fact. Have they gone any further? He eagerly asked. Have they discovered the great secret of the transmission of atoms? In other words, have they accomplished the telepomp? I've heard nothing of the kind, I hastened to assure him, but but what do you mean? Listen, he said, in the course of my experiments with the telephone, I became convinced that the same principle was capable of indefinite expansion. Matter is made up of molecules, and molecules in their turn are made up of atoms. The atom, you know, is the unit of being. The molecules differ according to the number and the arrangement of their constituent atoms. Chemical changes are affected by the dissolution of the atoms in the molecules and their rearrangements into molecules of another kind. This dissolution may be accomplished by chemical affinity or by a sufficiently strong electric current. Do you follow perfectly? Follow out this line of thought. I conceived a great idea. There was no reason why matter could not be telegraphed or, to be etymologically accurate, telepompt. It was only necessary to affect at one end of the line the disintegration of the molecules into atoms and to convey the vibrations of the chemical dissolution by electricity to the other pole where a corresponding reconstruction could be affected from other atoms. As all atoms are alike, their arrangement into molecules of the same order and the arrangement of those molecules into an organization similar to the original organization would be practically a reproduction of the original. It would be a materialization, not in the sense of the spiritualist cant, but in all the truth and logic of stern science. Do you follow me? It is a little misty, I said, but I think I get the point. You would telegraph the idea of the matter, to use the word idea in Plato's sense. Precisely. A candle flame is the same candle flame, although the burning gas is continually changing. A wave on the surface of water is the same wave, although the water composing it is shifting as it moves. A man is the same man, although there is not an atom in his body which was there five years before. It is the form, the shape, the idea that is essential. The vibrations that give individuality to matter may be transmitted to a distance by wire just as readily as the vibrations that give individuality to sound. So I constructed an instrument by which I could pull down matter, so to speak, at the anode and build it up again on the same plan at the cathode. This was my telepomp. But in practice, how did the telepomp work? To perfection. In my rooms on Joy Street in Boston, I had about five miles of wire. I had no difficulty in sending simple compounds such as quartz, starch, and water from one room to another over this five-mile coil. I shall never forget the joy with which I disintegrated a three-cent postage stamp in one room and found it immediately reproduced at the receiving instrument in another. This success with inorganic matter emboldened me to attempt the same thing with a living organism. I caught a cat 
a black and yellow cat, and I submitted him to a terrible current from my 200-cup battery. The cat disappeared in a twinkling. I hastened to the next room and, to my immense satisfaction, found Thomas there alive and purring, although somewhat astonished. It worked like a charm. This is certainly very remarkable, isn't it? After my experiments with a cat, a gigantic idea took possession of me. If I could send a feline being, why not a human being? If I could transmit a cat five miles by wire in a flash of electricity, why not transmit a man to London by Atlantic cable and with equal dispatch? I resolved to strengthen my already powerful battery and to try the experiment. Like a thorough votary of science, I resolved to try the experiment on myself. I do not like to dwell upon this chapter of my experience, continued the head, winking a tear which had trickled down on his cheek and which I silently wiped away for him with my own pocket handkerchief. Suffice it that I trebled the cups in my battery, stretched my wire over housetops to my lodgings in Phillips Street, made everything ready, and with a solemn calmness born of my confidence in the theory, placed myself in the receiving instrument of the telepomp at my Joy Street office. I was as sure that when I made the connection with the battery, I would find myself in my rooms in Phillips Street as I was sure of my existence. Then I touched the key that led on the electricity. Alas. For some moments, my friend was unable to speak. At last, with an effort, he resumed his narrative. I began to disintegrate at my feet and slowly disappeared under my own eyes. My legs melted away, and then my trunk and arms, that something was wrong. I knew from the exceeding slowness of my dissolution, but I was helpless. Then my head went, and I lost all consciousness. According to my theory, my head, which having been last to disappear, should have been the first to materialize at the other. Theory was confirmed in fact. I recovered consciousness. I opened my eyes in my Phillips Street apartments. My chin was materializing, and with great effort, I saw my neck slowly taking shape. Suddenly, at uh, and about at the third cervical vertebra, the process stopped. In a flash, I knew the reason. I had forgotten to replenish the cups of my battery with fresh sulfuric acid, and there was not electricity enough to materialize the rest of me. I was ahead, but my body was Lord knows where. I did not attempt to offer consolation. Words would have been mockery in the presence of Professor Domkoff's grief. What matters it about the rest? He sadly continued. The house in Phillips Street was full of medical students. I suppose that some of them found my head and knowing nothing of me or of the telepomp appropriated for the purposes of an anatomical study. I suppose that they attempted to preserve it by some means of some arsenical preparation. How badly the work was done is shown by my defective nose. I suppose that I drifted from medical student to medical student and from anatomical cabinet to anatomical cabinet until some would-be humorist presented me to this collection as a French murderer of the last century. For some months, I knew nothing. And when I recovered consciousness, I found myself here. Such, added the head with a dry, harsh laugh, 
is the irony of fate. Is there nothing I can do for you, I asked after a pause. Thank you, the head replied. I am tolerably cheerful and resigned. I have lost pretty much all interest in experimental science. I sit here day after day and watch the objects of zoological, ichthyological, ethnological, and conchological interest with which this admirable museum abounds. I don't know of anything you can do for me. Stay, he added, as his gaze fell once more upon the exasperating lace of the Odinensis long pipis opposite him. If there is anything I do feel the need of, it is outdoor exercise. Couldn't you manage in some way to take me out for a walk? I confess that I was somewhat staggered by this request, but promised to do what I could. After some deliberation, I formed a plan, which was carried out in the following manner. I returned to the museum that afternoon just before the closing hour and hid myself behind the mammoth sea cow, or Manatus americanus. The attendant, after a cursory glance through the hall, locked up the building and departed. Then I came boldly forth and removed my friend from his shelf. With a piece of stout twine, I lashed his one or two vertebrae to the headless vertebrae of a skeleton moa. This gigantic and extinct bird of New Zealand is heavy-legged, full-breasted, tall as a man, and has huge sprawling feet. My friend, thus provided with legs and arms, manifested extraordinary glee. He walked about, stamped his big feet, swung his wings, and occasionally broke forth into a hilarious shuffle. I was obliged to remind him that he must support the dignity of the venerable bird whose skeleton he had borrowed. I despoiled the African lion of his glass eyes and inserted them in the empty orbits of the head. I gave Professor Dumpkoff a Fiji war lance for a walking stick, covered him with a Sioux blanket, and then we arsenal into fresh night air and the moonlight and wandered arm in arm along the shores of the quiet lake and through the mazy paths of the ramble. And behold, a man of parts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and so, truly a dumb cuff, right? <laughs> a stupid head. Or a silent head. <laughs> uh, you know, well, it, it means, it, I, it, I think it means stupid head because the word I dumb agree cuff with is you. used it's in German. German. Oh, right? Yes. Yeah, you, yeah. You, it, yes. An insult. Dumb cuff. Yes. Exactly. But um, <laughs> it also speaks to, you know, we've all been to museums and we go in there and, and you see this this thing behind the glass or on display. And then there's a little card beside it. Um, and we've had the experience. Wow, this particular exhibit really speaks to me. I think that that's what the, <laughs> the, <laughs> what's going on here, because it, I, I call it a hard SF story. And the reason I call it that is because. It has these sections where he's doing exactly what H.G. Wells does, explaining how invisibility is possible, even though it's not, right? Um, he, by analogy, he, he compares one thing, he explains something uh, using real physical terms. There's some passages in here that are absolutely timeless in terms of good science, good science and good science fiction writing. Um, when he talks about how uh, every atom is identical to every other atom. He's right, right? This is this is a man, Edward Page Mitchell, knew what he was talking about. 
So when he does this other thing, <laughs> when he got a disembodied talking head that has tears rolling down his, I mean, he is so playful in the writing that I don't even like find it jarring at all that it is both a fantastic fantasy story and also a hard, hard SF story. I agree with you fully. I would do want to insert just for our modern readers or listeners, I should say, um, this science is correct by analogy, as you say, for the science of its time. In fact, all atoms are not the same. Um, we can have different isotopes of the same atom. Sure. Uh, and, and, and but that's unknown. Um, at, in 1877. So uh, the, the science is good, but we shouldn't just quite repeat it. Well, he, uh, as, uh, you know, that that's possible, but also, you know, it doesn't really matter in your being whether you've got a, uh, car- a per- one particular carbon-14 atom, <laughs> slightly different isotope than another, because we're replacing our body parts all the time. So it, while he's not perfect in some of the details. The fact that he's got a, a decapitated talking head. Oh yeah. <laughs> doesn't oh, bother yeah. me at all because uh, uh, the meta stuff around it, like there's a little bit of confusion in my mind when I first read it. I was like, who is the narrator here? Um, he seems to be, I think we talked a little bit about this. He seems to be a patron of the museum. He's like a guy who, contributes to the museum am i wrong no i think that's exactly what trustee means here right so he he has special access to the museum because perhaps he's donated a wing to it <laughs> or oh. a couple of legs right <laughs> um and and so the uh, the attendants have given him the keys right it's like the key to the city here this is the key to the museum walk around enjoy it as you will make it your home right and yet he also shouldn't be despoiling the uh, <laughs> the um, other things. Right, yeah, the birds and the the war lances, right? But he's, he's doing this uh, because he loves science so much. And that's also why he recognizes Professor Doomkoff's head. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think we could spend too much time analyzing the psychology of this. Like, is this guy delusional? I think that those would all be mistakes uh, because that's not the point of this story, I think. The point of this story is he had this idea of the telepomp and he found a way to tell it in a very short amount of space in a newspaper. It's, it's uh, on the original, it's one half of a page, right, of a full newspaper um, it's unattributed as well. It's only by uh, research that people know that this is written by Paige Mitchell. Um, but it's it's incredibly powerful. And I just didn't think that most people were thinking about this in 1877. But, uh. of course, 1876, it's, it's even mentioned in this story, someone has recently invented the telephone. It's like, oh, yeah, so people were doing this. We just don't think about it that way, right? Batteries in here, perfectly explainable and uh, common, although not everybody had one in their house. If you were having a laboratory, of course you'd have some batteries because electricity is really interesting. And more importantly, it's in use all over the place with the telegraphs. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, I would differ. I, I, everything you say seems right to me. I, I would uh, emphasize a couple of things in addition. Um, not all of the jokes have to do with science. Well, a lot of them do, of course, because mm-hmm. um, this is the devotee of science and the trustee is a rich man dabbling in in science. Um, for instance, there's this lovely little bit of uh, literary criticism. There isn't even enough of me to make a hero for one of Wilkie Collins's novels, telling us that Wilkie Collins's novels is popular heroes who don't have much substance. <laughs> Wilkie Collins, of course, is best known nowadays as the writer of The Moonstone, one of the early important detective novels. Um, so there are other jokes going on here, including jokes about what it's like to be a New Yorker, what it's like to be uh, somebody who is of the lower classes and just eager to drink beer. And I also think that the psychology is good here. To I won't put a lot of time into it. I I accept your caveat, Jesse. But if I were walking along in a museum and I saw a stuffed head, excuse me, a shrunken head, um, uh, a mummified head, and it winked at me, (laughs) I don't think the first thing I would do would be to say, how can I help you? What's life like for you? I mean, this guy, whether he's projecting or not, there is something amazing going on that the the dumb cuff the stupid head that is being addressed is being addressed by someone who is really a fanboy of science yes and he's just ready to have this turn out to be the case so when he then makes his own frankenstein bird you know he puts together all of the different parts that is the very definition of a chimera Mm-hmm. which is not scientific at all, but utterly fantastic. So one of the things I like so much about this story is that it asks us to recognize that there is something inherently fantastic about the progress of science. It's mm-hmm. not like there's fantasy on the one hand and science on the other, but in fact, those who are most enthusiastic about science are attracted, at least as as Edward Page Mitchell is putting it to us um, by the fantasy of it. Mm. How marvelous to bottle smell. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. To, to what is photograph it? Photograph a smell. Photo, photograph a smell. Bottle music. Well, that looks just like almonds. <laughs> <laughs> Bottling music and freezing the aurora borealis. Wow, this guy's impressive. So he's obviously, you know, this is the author being very playful. In the very. Uh, <laughs> In the next column over, in the same section of the version I'm looking at, uh, there's just also, like, really just delightful writing. So we get a kind of a joke here that I think is it's it's a science joke. Paris, murderer, last century, indeed. And the head shook with laughter until I feared that it would tumble off the shelf. You spoke of your invention, the telepomp, I suggested. Ah, yes, said the head, simultaneously recovering its gravity and its center of gravity. <laughs> Yes. Well, the gravity well, is like the seriousness, and then the second meaning of center, center of gravity is not going to fall over anymore. <laughs> exactly. No, this is very cleverly done. Very cleverly done. You know, the uh, we we now have televisions, right? We, you know, where we can see things. We talk about teleportation, carrying yep. things across distances. Uh, Edward Page Mitchell chose a different second part for after Tella. He chose the word pomp. Mm-hmm. Well, 
pomp is not just any visible thing. It's not just vision. It's not just um, fan, as in epiphany. Um, pomp is precisely that huge display of luxury or authority or power that goes in the phrase pomp and circumstance. Um, so there is something clearly self-aggrandizing about Professor Domkoff. Or uh, perhaps it's self-aggrandizing about the trustee who is projecting himself into Professor Domkoff. I don't know. That word also struck me as the, this is actually a, uh, it's a grand word, but it's also got the other sort of meaning. The uh, It makes me think of um, psychopomp. The psychopomp mm-hmm. is a, a thing that carries you from our world to the other world, you know? Like, so uh, the guy you give money to, the ferryman, um, you give money to to cross the River Styx. He's a, right. a, a, a psychopomp. Um, he takes your mind across. But here, this guy's talking about Dumkoff's. He's like, we can transmit somebody under the sea, through undersea cables, from uh, Boston to London, from London to Paris, from Paris, right? I mean, this is, in fact, he had... <laughs> The line there um, was, uh, I, I came up with a, uh, here it is. After my experiment with the cat, a gigantic idea took possession of me, right? And what's funny is just a minute ago, he had, they'd been talking about the, the narrator had been talking about the idea in the sense that Plato has, right? Mm-hmm. Capital I. You would telegraph the idea of matter, to use the word idea in Plato's sense, and then he telegraphs the cat across the house, then plans to telegraph himself five miles across the city from his home to his laboratory. And in that possession, uh, taking possession of him, right, he's literally submitting himself to his own experiment. That's where things go wrong. And that's why we don't have the telepomp, right? Right. Um, <laughs> And, and and a little tiny thing, right? I forgot to charge the battery. <laughs> right. So only the, no, notice like, by the the way he's talking about the the, the a voltaic battery, the kind that was invented um, in that century, uh, earlier that century. It's lead and sulfuric acid. Uh, I know about sulfuric acid. That's the smell that you can photograph if you can get to hell. Right. Yeah. There is lots of religious imagery here, a votary of science. Right. Pomp, yeah. as in psychopomp, that's a god creating mm-hmm. a procession. In fact, pomp means procession in Greek. Um, there, there's all kinds of stuff here. It's, it's not a world of science by itself. And why, after all, are we making objects of these things? What kind of acquisitive, acquisitive notion do we have of the world itself? Mm. Is science devotion or science self-aggrandizement? Underneath all of these jokes, there are serious issues. Mm. I think I think Edward Page Mitchell wants us to realize there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron 
at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.